So this is the first book of the Bible, uh, or this is what I would call, this is the beginning of the story of God's relationship with us, with all of humanity. And our goal for this entire series over the next 12 weeks is to really see God at work. Uh, we're going to see God's creative work uh, in creation, Him creating the entire universe and our world. Uh, we're going to see how God has always had a plan uh, to save His people uh, through, you know, we, we're going to cover this in Genesis chapter 3, what we call it, what we refer to as the fall. This is where Adam and Eve uh, eat of the fruit of the tree and they sin against God. And so God has always had a plan to redeem his own people. And he was going to do that through his own people, uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And if you're not familiar with who those people are, we'll cover those people eventually. We'll get we'll get to them. Uh, so that'll be our goal to sort of see God working uh, in this entire uh, book. And so since this, the first, since this is the first message that we're going to do, I, w- I felt like we need to have some sort of introductory uh, sort of uh, notes onto, you know, what this book really is, who wrote it, and all of that, so that we're all on the same page uh, as far as this book uh, is concerned. And so tradition tells us, church history and all of that tells us, that Moses is the one who wrote the book of Genesis. And he's also the author of four other books. Uh, so you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these are often called the five books of Moses or the Torah or the Pentateuch. And so if you read anything about the book of Genesis, you'll probably hear uh, those words uh, thrown around. And Genesis uh, means beginnings. Uh, it actually refers to the very first word uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, if you read in the Hebrew language. Uh, and it's the word for beginnings. And so Genesis means beginnings, and that's what, where it gets its name from. And now many of us have read this book before. We've all, we all come into this, uh, reading this book with, uh, or we're going to go, you're going to come into this whole message series with a, a set of beliefs, preconceived notions or ideas of what this book is really trying to communicate uh, to us. And so I really feel like people who come to, to read the book of Genesis, I think they come, and I'm going to set out three different kinds of people. Maybe you find yourself in one of these three categories, maybe not. Um, so we'll just outline three for just for our time. But I think some people come to read the book of Genesis or come to the book of Genesis to find some encouragement. You know, a lot of us in here have um, had aspects of our lives that didn't work out so well. Uh, We've had hard times in our lives. We've had struggles uh, in our life of faith or just life in general. And so when we read the book of Genesis, we see uh, that we can identify with a lot of the characters uh, or the groups of people uh, in this story because they too have had struggles in their life or struggles in their faith uh, in God. So we just look, we look at the, the Israelites. And those people, they had a really turbulent history. Things didn't go so well for them sometimes because of their own sin, because of their own mistakes. That's, they suffered uh, the consequences of those mistakes that they made. But other times, it just other people were oppressing them. And so maybe we can identify with that. We see these people suffering. They're God's people. And so maybe we think the same thing about us, that why is God allowing such things to happen uh, in our lives? Uh, And so maybe we identify with them. Uh, You look at characters like Joseph, uh, who was thrown into slavery, sold into slavery by his own family. And so maybe there's some family issues going on in your life, and maybe you can identify with that. Uh, Abraham, another character, has had to, he had to wait a really long time for God's promises to be fulfilled in his life. And so maybe you identify with that. Maybe you say, you know, I've been praying something to God. I haven't had it. There's no answer for that prayer. And so maybe you can identify with having to wait a really long time to see God actually work 
in your life. And so maybe we identify with the characters. Think some other people who come to the book of Genesis. Uh, there are people who uh, are looking for answers to their scientific questions about it. And this is especially Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And next week is actually going to be a little different. Next week we're going to be talking about some of the questions that people have about the book of Genesis. Very common questions that you'll find from people who are followers and people who are not. Uh, and one of them really has to do with creation and how do we view that. Uh, is, it really, is, it, is he really trying to tell us how he did it? Is he trying to tell us how long it took him? Like, was it six literal days? Uh, or is it six different spans of time? Or whatever else. And so some people come looking to Genesis 1 and 2 for those specific answers. I also think people come to the book of Genesis looking for reasons to disprove God. Now, if you read through Genesis, you find a lot of stories, um, or a handful of stories, that might make you doubt God, might make you doubt your belief in God. You know, one story that we will cover is when Abraham is, uh, God commands Abraham to go and sacrifice his son, his only son, at that point. Uh, and, uh, and we think to ourselves, well, why would God command him to do that? Why would he ask him to do that? You look to the other stories, and we think, you, you got to think to yourself, it's like, why would God ask us to believe all this stuff, yet give us all the reasons to not believe in it in the first place? And so there's got to be some other reason underneath all the stories. So we don't just read them at face value. There's something else going on, a deeper purpose uh, behind all of these things. And so now all of us, you know, if you don't fit any of those, in, in those three categories, you probably have some other reason, what, uh, uh, some other ideas of, uh, that would be in your mind when you come to read this book. And so what I want us to do, though, is as we come into this study, I want you to throw away those preconceived ideas, notions, or beliefs about what you believe Genesis is communicating to you so that you can see not, not what I believe about it, but really what God is trying to teach you uh, throughout this whole series. So it may not even be anything I actually te I tell you. Uh, it may just be something completely different. So to be open to that. Um, and so just throw away all those kind of preconceived ideas or notions in your brain. And so to begin with what we're going to talk about today, we're going to start with a picture. What is that? Statue of Liberty, right? So I wanted to pick a, a, a picture that everybody knew, everybody was familiar with. And so, originally, when the Statue of Liberty uh, was built, constructed, and then given to the United States, it was given as a gift to us uh, from France. And it really was a symbol of friendship uh, between both of the countries, uh, and it was also sort of a uh, symbol of liberty uh, that both countries, the United States and France, desired uh, to have in their own people and in their own nations. Now, when immigrants started coming over to the United States by boat, a lot of them saw this statue uh, when they came here. And so for them, it really was a symbol of hope. It was a symbol of opportunity that they were coming to the United States and they were uh, going to start make a life, uh, a life for themselves. They were going to be better off here in the United States than they were in whatever country they were in. And now for us, I don't know what it means for us today. You know, a lot of people go and visit the Statue of Liberty. How many of you have actually seen it before in person? Yeah, yeah. So, and if you haven't seen it in person, you've seen a picture of it for the first time. But if you really see, if you've seen it in person, it's really, it's a really tall thing. It's majestic. It's beautiful. It's a really great thing uh, to see. And there's some meaning behind it for us. And I think for us, I think it really means, um, or it really symbolizes freedom. Uh, that desire for freedom that we have here in the United States, in our own lives, and then for all people to be able to experience that same freedom 
as well. And so just like the Statue of Liberty, I'm sure there are statues or buildings uh, wherever you were born, uh, wherever you've come from, wherever you visited, uh, that have some meaning behind them. I mean, they're not just beautiful, they're not just majestic, but there's a deeper meaning behind why those statues were built. Uh, there's a, there, the image or likeness that they have, there's a purpose behind all of that. Now, one of the most powerful things that God ever says about us, or what he says to us, and this is what he says in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 27. He says, And God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So to be created in God's image in ancient times was likened to a statue being built in a city. Now, it would represent either a king or a god who couldn't be physically present in that place. And so for us to be created in the image of God means we are like a statue that's been built here on earth uh, to mirror God, not in our physical traits, like none of us look like God, uh, but in the way that we live out our lives. So through our characteristics, our attitudes, our expressions, and everything else, the way we really live out our lives in this world, how we interact with other people, that's really the meaning or the purpose that we have. And that, and that meaning or purpose is not inherent in us, just because we're, we're people, but it's because God has given it to us. And as we're going to see throughout this chapter, is that God has created the entire universe, and He has given everything purpose, He's given, every, given everything meaning, and the only reason that we are significant, the only reason we have value, is because God Himself has given it to us. And so we're going to read through Genesis chapter 1, uh, and it's a lengthy chapter, and so hopefully you'll stick with me. Uh, Nicholas, do you mind going through... Awesome. Thank you. All right. Starting in verse 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault uh, from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered at one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. 
God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the, uh, the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the waters teem, and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and in the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, just a couple of notes there. He says, like, let us make mankind. And so you think, well, God is talking here, and he's saying, let us. And so us, uh, as followers of Jesus, after having the New Testament, we can look into that and we can see the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have the ability to be able to read that into Genesis 1. But, though, but Moses and all of his, uh, the people in his time probably wouldn't have understood it that way. And so just kind of keep that in mind as we're, as we're going through this. But then he says, in our image and in our likeness. That's what they were going to make mankind into. And really, we're the only thing uh, that has been, have been created in God's image, have been given a significant purpose and, uh, uh, and meaning in this life. And so that puts us above animals, it puts us above plants, and all of those things. So keep that in mind. And then verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit uh, with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And so Moses makes a very definitive statement, a very definite statement of who created the heavens and the earth. He says that God had created it. Uh, The God of the Old Testament, this would be Yahweh God. Uh, And in their time, he's writing a a creation account that's very different uh, from other stories in his time. If you go back to ancient times, there were tons of stories, and I'm sure maybe even today in different cult, various cultures that our church represents, uh, of stories about how the earth came to be or who created it in the first place. Now, in his time, there were, there were two main stories. There was one story where these two gods fought each other, and out of that chaos of them fighting each other, the universe was created. There was another story where one god split another god in half, and out of that chaos the universe was born. 
And so any reader during his time would have had these stories in the back of their minds. But Moses is telling us that Yahweh, God, the God of the Old Testament, didn't need any of that. He didn't have to go and fight another God to create the universe. He didn't, have to, he didn't need the help of anybody else to do it. And since he's the one who created it, he also created it out of nothing. He didn't need anything to do it, and so he created the universe out of nothing. And Moses tells us that everything he created, everything you see, the ground, the, the seas, the, the stars, the moon, the sky, the, the sun, everything that he's created, if you notice, after everything he created, he said that everything was good. And so you think today and you look at everything, you say, man, how can everything be good when so many terrible things are actually happening? You know, God didn't create anything bad. He's always intended for everything to be good. We just happen to make the mistake of sitting against God and now everything is bad. And so that's kind of a simplified version of a very deeper problem that we have, what we're going to cover in like two weeks. Uh, But really it was our fault uh, to begin with. And so... Again, next week, we're going to be talking about something a little different. Uh, it'll be a little different than the format we have now, but just talking about questions that people have about what Genesis 1 is really trying to communicate to us. Is it how or how long? Uh, but just to say it now, if you're not going to be here next week, uh, as I think the point of what Genesis 1 is trying to communicate to us is not really how and how long uh, of creation, uh, but really is trying to tell us uh, who did it, uh, what he did, and why he did it in the first place. And so some of that will be evident as we read uh, the re- or kind of go through the rest of this, but we'll flesh it out a little bit more next week uh, to kind of give you some tools and uh, some different understandings of what uh, other, how other people uh, might see this. And now after he says all of the, everything he's created, he gets to sort of the high point of creation. So creation is sort of like an ice cream sundae, okay? So you have all the t- everything on it. You've got your ice cream, you've got your whipped cream and everything, and we get to humankind, and humankind is sort of the cherry on top, all right? So it's the high point of creation. When God gets there, he says that he has created all of us in his image and in his likeness. We're the only thing that have been created in such a way. But then what's really cool about it is that after humankind has been created, that's the only time that God says that his creation is very good. Everything else was just great. It was just good. And then we get to this point, Humanity's been created, has been made to rule on the earth, and everything is very, very good. And so I think that tells us, uh, I think this tells us that we're valued higher than the animals, higher than the plants, to be the only things created in this way. But I think it also means, uh, like I said earlier, to be created in His image and His likeness means that we mirror God on this earth. Not, again, not in our looks, but in our ability to represent Him in our attitudes, our expressions, and the way we live out our lives, and the way that we interact with other people. And really what that is, is that we have have to come uh, to a good understanding of the image of God. That the image of God has been imprinted in each and every one of us, but that it has also been imprinted in every person that's outside of this room and every person that is not a follower of Jesus. So this is not just referring to people who become Christians and you're made in the image of God. It's everybody uh, that we come in contact with. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I guess in my opinion, uh, I think we sort of have lost sight of this idea of the image of God. I don't know if we fully understand it. I don't know if we fully believe it about ourselves. I don't know if we believe it about other people. 
And so maybe the next things I want to say, maybe you don't agree with it, maybe you do. But I think when it comes to the image of God, I think we say that we are created in it or other people are created in the image of God simply to be theologically correct. Meaning that with just about everything else in the Bible, we, we believe it just because the Bible says so, but do our lives reflect that we actually believe those truths? I think we also say that people are creating the image of God. Uh, it's, a, it's sort of cliche now. I think we, we throw it around a lot, maybe not really meaning it. Uh, it makes people feel good uh, when you say that they have been created in the image of God. But do we really believe it? Do each of us really believe that we have been created in him, His image? Do we believe that the people that we come in contact with every day, the people who annoy us, the people that we hate, the people that we dislike, do we also believe that they are created in God's image as well? Now, I'm not sure about you, but myself, I, I, I can say this for myself, I, I think it's sometimes hard to believe that other people have been created in the image of God. And for some of you, maybe it's the same way. And I think that's really like, clearly seen in the way that we treat other people. You know, it's known throughout our culture that Christians are like the most judgmental group of people that you can ever come in contact with. You know, we judge other people before we have the facts. I'm the first to admit that's what I do. I judge people before I know the whole situation. And one, of the, one situation that's like really recent with that is this whole thing with um, the hurricane in Houston right now. Now, Joel Osteen... It doesn't matter where you th- what you think about him theologically or what he says. Uh, but a lot of people really began judging him, really began criticizing him for not opening his doors uh, you know, to, to shelter all the homeless people that were in, or not homeless, but the people who had evacuated there in Houston. And so he came out uh, later that week and told them all the facts. You know, he said that you know, a few years ago, it actually did flood. Uh, I guess in 2000, before they bought the building, it actually did flood before. And so they tried to put a bunch of precautions in place, safeties in place, uh, uh, concrete in place so that the building wouldn't get flooded again. But he showed pictures that of where the water was when Harvey hit, that it was really close to flooding the area. And so he didn't want to, uh, uh, to be liable for all the people maybe getting hurt uh, with all that happening. But see, non-Christians and Christians all jumped on that and started criticizing him before we had all the facts. Now, some of us also judge other people because of appearance. Maybe we're in a bad part of town. You see somebody wearing baggy pants or something, and so you're extra cautious. Maybe you see somebody who's got a a head covering on their head or something, and so you're extra cautious around those kinds of people. And so we also judge other people that are of a different sexual orientation. And so are we really seeing that people are created in the image of God? We also lie, cheat, and steal from other people. We hurt them, and thus not treating them like they've been created in the image of God with dignity, with compassion, with love, and with great care, the same, the things that God, uh, the same way that God has treated us. So you see this idea of being created in the image of God. I think what it does for us, I think it gives us or bestows on us, especially followers of Jesus, three different things. So here's the first thing. I think it gives us dignity. So if you have a good understanding of the image of God, I think it gives each and every one of us, it gives every other person uh, in this world, it gives us dignity. Now, if we look at our world, if we look at our different cultures, I think dignity might be seen in different ways, uh, depending on what culture you're from. 
Uh, maybe dignity is seeing more of who you are or what you have done, what you are doing or what you will do, that you look successful and so you're dignified. You have that honor and respect that everybody wants. And maybe I should make sure everybody understands dignity. Dignity is just on- being honored and being respected. And so each of us has that because the image of God has been imprinted in each and every one of us. Now, a few years ago, I worked in higher education, and I worked in cooperation with the Salvation Army. So a lot of us are familiar with what that is. And we visited a bunch of sites that they had. So they have a bunch of different locations all over the United States. And we visited this one particular one. And at this site, they had two entrances to their food pantry, okay, where people can get food, uh, get help, or whatever. And so they had a front entrance and a back entrance. Now, we look at that, and when I thought about it, I said, well, why, are they, why do they have a back entrance for people to use? Is it because they don't want the poor people to be seen? They don't want the worst of the worst to be seen coming in through their front doors. But really, why that back door is put in place was for people who felt some sort of shame or felt some sort of, like they would lose all respect from people if they, if they were seen coming to get food or to get help from the Salvation Army. And so they put that for those kinds of people. So I think that what that is, is that's telling us where our culture is at. Now, maybe our culture has always been there, but it's always our dig- the dignity that you have is always based on what, other, what, what you do in life or who you've made yourself out to be. And so if you have you know, a great job and you don't need any help, you don't have to go to a food pantry, you, have, you go to a great school, you have a great family with no problems, you have all of those things in place, that sort of makes you dignified. And then when everything goes wrong in every one of those areas of your life, you sort of feel like you've lost all respect or you, lost, or you could lose all respect or lose all the honor from the people that are all around you. But the dignity that we have isn't because of what we've done, what we're doing or will do. The dignity we have is because God has given us that significance. God has given us that meaning. And God has given us all of that stuff. It's not a matter of where you work, where you go to school, how great your family is. It's all because God has given it to us. Because you see, when God created humankind, this is where it says in Genesis 2, where God took the dust of the earth and he formed the dust. And see, there's no significance in that dust that that, that he had there. There was no significance in it. But then God breathed life into it. God gave it that significance. God gave it the meaning, or gave us the meaning and significance that we need to have. And so we have dignity just only because God has given it to us. And I think it's highlighted in the way, in the commands that Jesus gives us. You look in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but then he says to also love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves because every person Every created person here on earth has that dignity or should have that dignity, significance, and meaning, and we need to treat them in such a way. I think it also gives us a responsibility. You know, I think um, we have a responsibility on how we treat ourselves, how we treat other people as creatures created in the image of God. And I think sometimes we're actually, I think we can get overwhelmed uh, by this fact that everybody has been. Uh, Because when we look at our world, we see there's so much evil in our world. We see that there's so much evil in our own hearts that it's hard to believe that we've been created in the image of God and that other people have been created in the image of God as well. Now, in his book, uh, C.S. Lewis, a lot of you know who that is, he said this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Now, what he's saying is that the reality is, is that anybody that you come in contact with, 
No matter how obscure they are, how hidden from society they are, how weird they are, every person uh, is not normal to God. There's no ordinary person. Everybody that we come in contact with is significant. Everybody has meaning, even if we look at them and say that that can't be. These people, because of all they've done wrong, they can't be created in his image. So I think for all of us, especially followers of Jesus, God has given us the responsibility to treat other people as creatures created in his image. Because you see, when we read through anything that Jesus said, you can take about anything he said, anything the Apostle Paul said, or anybody else in the New Testament and the Old Testament. They always talked about how we're supposed to love and serve our neighbor, always having their greatest good in mind, despite what they've done to us, despite how they respond to how we show our, our love towards them. Now, in extreme cases, I think I already mentioned this, extreme cases, it might be harder to see that other people have been created in the image of God. You look at ISIS. You see all these people beheading people. You see them burning down churches. You see them torturing people, persecuting Christians and other religious minorities and all of that. And we say, how can those people be created in the image of God? Well, if we really believe what Genesis 1 tells us, they have been created in the image of God. They have just chosen to do otherwise with their lives. They decided to live lives not like God wants them to live, but however they want to live. But even in less extreme cases, I think it might even be harder there too uh, to say that we believe people are created in the image of God. You know, those people who annoy us, those people that we hate, those people that we dislike, simply because maybe they said something to us, maybe they did something that was still probably terrible, uh, but we don't look at them as God's creation. We don't look at them as if God has created them, not as if, that God created them with a purpose. God has created them with some significance in their lives. And so we have a responsibility. And that responsibility, we don't have, there's no boundaries. It doesn't matter what someone's done to you. It doesn't matter how bad they seem. We are called to treat other people with compassion, with dignity, uh, as if, or again, I always say as if, that they have been created in his image. Now, the final thing we're given is the capacity a capacity to mirror God uh, in our world. So we all, have, we all have dignity. We all have the responsibility to show people that. And we all have the capacity to be able to do that in our lives as well. Now, Matthew 5.48, Jesus says that, uh, he says to be, be, uh, be holy as your heavenly Father, in he- or as your Father in heaven is holy. Uh, another translation might say to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, he's not telling us that, you know, you need to live a life where you're not failing, that everything is always, you know, mistake-free. But he's telling us that we're supposed to live our lives with Jesus as our highest goal. So, the way Jesus lives, that's the way we're supposed to live. And he knows we're not going to do that perfectly, but that's what we're supposed to strive for. And so, in this whole idea of the image of God, treating people in, in, in that way, we may not do that perfectly, uh, and I'm sure we don't. Uh, but we have to strive to do it just as well as Jesus did. Because if we're left to live our lives the way we want to, we can't truly, or in the truest sense, treat people like they've been created in his image. I think we would fail every time. And that's why I think Paul tells us this. He says in Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10, Put on the new self, 
created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It says, put on the new self again, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And so if we continue to just want to do what we want to do, we're never going to be able to treat people that way. But as Paul says, put on the new self. Really live out our lives like God wants us to live, allowing Jesus to not just live in us, but to live through us, that we can treat people like they've been created in his image. Because again, if we don't do that, if we don't allow Jesus to live through us, uh, again, we look to the way that we treat other people right now. I mean, we, we lie, cheat, and steal to hurt people, we judge people based on appearance, we judge people without having all the facts. And so that's just a sampling of the things that we do. And so if left to live our lives the way we want to, we're not ever going to be able to do that. And so you see, it's essential that we grasp that truth, that we have all been created in the image of God, but that other people have been created in the very same way. And thankfully, we have an example, a great example uh, in the Bible, and that's Jesus. You know, some of us may look to, you know, the Pope, we may look to Gandhi, we might look at Mother Teresa, we might look at the Dalai Lama, we might look at all these other people and say, man, that's the kind of life I want to strive for. But I can tell you, because they're human, just like every one of us, uh, that they are not perfect, that they fail. But Jesus is our perfect example. And that's what, the, that's what the book of Hebrews tells us, that Jesus was completely perfect, that he never sinned. And so that's our goal in life. We're supposed to strive to live our lives just like he lived. And so when it comes to this idea of how we treat other people with dignity, with compassion, with love, and with care, we've got to look at him as our highest goal. And so it shouldn't scare us. You know, his example for us shouldn't scare us, but it should challenge us to see the areas of our lives where maybe we're not treating other people like God would treat, or Jesus would treat them. I mean, you look at Jesus, the end of his life, the very people who are created in his image are the same people who crucified him, or the same people who wanted him dead. But yet he still loved them, he still loved us, and still loves us, uh, regardless of what we're going to do to him, or how we're going to respond to his offer of grace towards us. 